Welcome to my monthly podcast titled Becoming a Sage. My name is Jan Freed, but you can call me Dr. Jan. I interview people about wisdom, how to find meaning on a daily basis, a concept I call breadcrumb legacy. I am passionate about helping people get from where they are to where they want to be, particularly in the second half of life. I also say I'm out to retire the word retirement. We are not retiring from life, but we're moving on to something else. And I believe it takes time and intentional thought to successfully move on to what's next in life. I interviewed Bruce Rosenstein. I reached out to Bruce after reading several of his articles about Peter Drucker. And then I also realized I've, I've also read at least one of your books. Uh, Drucker, one of my favorites, known as the father of modern management. In fact, I tried to contact Peter in 2004 to interview him for my book, Leading with Wisdom, Sage Advice from 100 Experts. Not only is he a sage, he's also an expert. Um, and my son graduated from Claremont McKenna in Claremont, California, where the Peter Drucker Graduate School of Business is located. I even took photos of myself standing in front of the Peter, I don't know if it's the Peter Drucker sign or the Drucker Way sign or something. So I even have photos of, so I'm definitely a groupie and uh, Bruce is too. Bruce is the managing editor of Leader to Leader, a publication of the Francis Hesselbein Leadership Forum. He's the author of Create Your Future, The Peter Drucker Way and Living in More Than One World, how Peter Drucker's wisdom can inspire and transform your life. That's the book I know I've read for sure. He worked for USA Today from 1987 to 2008 as a corporate librarian. And during the final 12 years, also as a writer about business and management books for the newspaper's money section. For more information about Bruce, pre please refer to the bio attached to this podcast. Well, welcome to Becoming a Sage podcast, Bruce. And thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, well, I feel very fortunate. Um, so I'm just going to dive into the questions that I have here. You've written two books about Peter Drucker. Can you explain how they came about and the main differences between the two? As you said, I, I've read one of them. And um, so tell, tell us about these books. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, the 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 first book, the, the one that you read, Living in More Than One World, um, had a very long genesis. Um, it, it had, it, um, I started working on it officially in 2002, the fall of 2002, and I didn't get a book contract until around mid-2008, so it was a really long time, and then the book came out in 2009. But to backtrack about really how that came about was um, you had mentioned that I'd worked for USA Today and I was my main work was as a corporate librarian. Um, so uh, way back in 1986, when I was um, studying library science at Catholic University, where I later went back to teach as an adjunct, um, when I was studying library science my first year at the school in 1986, um, I took a library management course. And the main the textbook for that course, now not the whole book because it was 864 pages, but Drucker's classic book, uh, Management Task Responsibilities Practices. And I'd only really just heard a little bit about Drucker before that. And there's nothing in there really specifically about libraries, but it spoke to me on a very, very deep level. So I just kept going with my study of Drucker, you know, well beyond that course, well beyond that management course, 
And I just started reading everything that I could get about him and just getting more and more into him. And then I had had a lot of writing experience, but I, I sort of transferred that experience over to the, um, to the business world when I started writing for USA Today, writing about business and management books. So Drucker became one of my specialties when I was doing that. And I was fortunate enough to, uh, I had had a couple of interviews with him. It was kind of funny to think of it now, but they were really by, by fax where you would send him faxed <laughs> questions and he would send sure. them back to you. Um, but I was very fortunate to uh, right around, we were coming up on the 20th anniversary of this. And in the summer of uh, 2002, uh, kind of all the stars aligned. And what happened was Drucker was gonna be one of the keynote speakers for what's called the Special Library Association. This is a library association I belong to and for their annual conference in Los Angeles. Wow. And I, I was going to the conference anyway, but um, I, was, I asked my editor at USA Today if I could do an interview with Peter. And um, you know, one thing led to another. We did a very long interview the night before he gave his keynote. He was 92 at the time. I was gonna say, and, yeah, he died in 2005. Five, correct. Yeah. 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 So, so 92. Wow. Yeah, he was 92. He gave, I was with him for four hours, literally four hours the night before. And then, you know, at 930 in the morning, he gave a keynote in front of thousands of people. It was quite impressive. And that went really well. The article came out in July of 2002. So 20 years ago. And that really emboldened me to start writing the book. And I felt that my there were other books about Drucker um, that had already been published. And then, you know, of course, couple others that came out even before mine did. However, I felt that my central idea was Drucker and the individual as opposed to Drucker and the organization, although there's a little bit about that in there. And th those were the kinds of questions I asked him. So we built the book around this concept of living in more than one world based on what he told me in an interview that we did in 2005 which I believe was one of the very last interviews he gave because he died seven months to the day after that. Right. right. And so that became, um, that became the cornerstone of the book, this idea of, of living in more than one world, having a multidimensional life. And, but as I said, that took a long time to come out. He unfortunately passed away. He didn't even know I had a book contract. Um, but the book eventually did come out in 2009, which was the hundredth it was the year that marked the hundredth year of his birth mm -hmm. so we kind of were able to time it Barrett Kohler the publisher of that book uh, we were able to time it so it came out well in advance of the actual anniversary uh, so that was the first book and then the second book create your future the Peter Drucker way came out four years later a different publisher McGraw Hill um, and really that's still about the individual however it's, uh, and again, a little bit about the organization. However, it's very focused on this idea of Drucker in the future. So this was a huge topic for Drucker, but he never wrote a book specifically about the future. So I did have a little bit of uh, unused interview material that I used in that, but I'd used most of it in the first book. I mean, because it was, if I must say so, it was really good interview material and I wanted mm -hmm. to get it as much as I could in that first book. Uh, so for the second book, we really broadened it out, interviewed a number of people, some who were part of Drucker's world, some who are not. Uh, and so that's the difference um, between the two books. And I, I also would like to say that for both of those books, I tried to make them evergreen books that would not go um, out of style and that would not seem dated. Sure. Um, 
And, and I feel that I've done that. It's obviously up to readers to decide that. But when I look at the books now, and, and of course I look at them all the time, um, I, I feel that I've done that. I've created something that's evergreen and that, and that will, will last for a while. Well, and he, thank you. He was so ahead of his time. I mean, I remember him writing a, an article I shared because my background, I taught, um, I was in higher education. I taught at a small college for 30 years and now I teach a graduate leadership course. Uh, but he had an article about how higher education is going to change. I can't remember what exactly the title. And right. um, he was just so um, like ahead of his time. And, you know, talking about knowledge workers, uh, you know, way ahead of anybody else. So exactly. before there really were a lot of knowledge workers, yes, yes. We started yeah. saying that around 1959, when you think about 1959 was a completely different world. Yes. And with this future oriented orientation that he had, he could just see beyond this. He could see the germ of what was happening at that point and then extrapolate to all sorts of other things. So came up with this idea of knowledge workers, um, but it was really a long time before we really had this whole kind of cadre of knowledge workers that we have now. Yes, that's very true. Well, I wanna kind of pursue that a little bit in terms of, you know, what are some facts, fun facts maybe that you can share about Peter that we might not know about from just reading books or articles, maybe interesting insider information. Um, this is kind of a groupy question. <laughs> you, <laughs> well, know, I mean, my, you know, I interview people about wisdom and when you think about wisdom, I mean, what, what was it that made him so wise? I mean, I've read some things, but I just wanted to hear it from you. Well, I think that, you know, there's a, to me, there's a lot, you know, in terms of the fun facts thing, um, you know, one thing is that he, was when you think about how famous he was, he prided himself on being kind of a one-man band. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have a, an organization. When you think about it, he could have easily created an organization with his name, um, made you know tons of money, hired other people, um, but he didn't do that. He wanted to be a kind of a one-man band. So as part of that, um, he used to answer his own phone. And he, he didn't, as far as I know, I mean, it's not like I called him a lot, but I, there were occasions that I had to call him and he answered his own phone and he did a lot of kind of the details of his work on his own. Um, now, Doris Drucker, who is a, a wonderful person who I also interviewed and wrote about, his wife of 68 years, um, I think Doris certainly helped him on some of those things. Uh, but Doris also, you know, had a, a wonderful um, career of her own. So that was one thing about sort of the, the priding himself on the one man band and kind of priding himself on, on answering, you know, his own phone. Uh, as far as I remember, he, he was actually in the phone book, which is, you know, insane when you think about it, that somebody like that would put his name in the, in the uh -huh. phone book. Um, but uh, in any case, as far as your other point about, I think there's a number of things. I think number one is just this, um, insatiable search for knowledge, um, wide reading, being open to information, being open to learning from all sorts of people. Um, uh, as I said, you know, he, he in this part of this living in more than one world idea, he was very cultured. So he, you know, took in lots of music and he would take in, you know, other things. Uh, I was told that for his, uh, for his consulting, that sometimes what he would do is uh, he was based in Claremont, which is, as you mentioned, is not too far from Los Angeles. So uh, 
he would take, if somebody came out to work with him for consulting, he would, they would go like one night to the Los Angeles Philharmonic. The next night, if it was summer, they would go to an LA Dodgers game. I mean, it was just really interesting things that he would do with people. Um, and, you know, classical music, opera, those were things that he knew quite a bit about, uh, wrote about to some extent. Another, you know, fun fact is that he became an expert in, or, in uh, uh, Japanese art and even taught it for a while at Pomoda College, which is also part of uh, the Claremont Colleges that you mentioned. Um, and he was very, very influenced by that. So all these different things, you know, taking in art, taking in sports, taking in music, taking in tons and tons of literature. He wrote two novels, uh, which is, I, I think, another interesting, fun fact. Uh -huh. So you put all those things together. Again, it's part of the living in more than one world um, concept, um, which was, by the way, I felt this was when I mentioned before about the stars aligning, you know, when he came to speak at that um, conference, um, a, a, a kind of another thing um, um, about this was this phrase living in more than one world. Um, so I never heard this phrase before or after, but in my talk, my interview with him in uh, April 2002 at, on, on the campus of the Drucker School, I asked him, you know, we were kind of uh, uh, going over the questions, but then I had a follow-up question, which, which um, you know, I had not mentioned to him, but as he's giving me his answers, I'm, I said to him, well, it sounds to me like you're saying to not be really, you know, over-invested in any one area of life. It represents your total life, which was a, a, a phrase that popped into my head that I also used in that book for the total life list. But I said that, um, you know, is this true that, that people should, um, you know, not be over-invested in any one area? Uh, no matter what it is, whether it's work or something outside of work. And then he came with this great line about the people he knew who were most satisfied and contented lived in more than one world. And I, I was really struck by that. And when my editor, Bear Kohler, said, you know, you have to hang your hat on one real idea that you can revolve the book around, uh, what is it? Um, and I decided that it had to be living in more than one world. So again, he, he expressed those that type of um, thought in other interviews, certainly, and in things that he wrote. However, he, as far as I know, he never used that particular phrase. So that's why I felt I needed to hang my hat on it and have that be the title of the book, the, the yeah. first book. Well, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, you. you know, from your perspective, and you've, you know, done a lot of writing, as you said, and you've interviewed Drucker and then for people who don't know who Francis Hesselbein is, um, you know, why don't you describe, you know, what is she, 104 now? I, I think she's, I believe she's 106. I, oh, 106, you know, I, okay. Yeah, I think she uh, used to not, not really, uh, you know, talk too much about her age, but I think, you know, once you get past 100, I think you just go for it, right? Exactly, and, uh, exactly. Well, yeah. I know her as, uh, or I think what, what I know of Frances, I know, um, I refer to her as uh, Peter Drucker's protege, kind of, uh, you know, he, yeah. he was her mentor, um, but you certainly know better than I do. So um, why don't you describe Frances to us a little bit, because she's still, uh, uh, you know, contributing here. Right, she and, sure is. 
and describe some of the things that you've learned from both of them or observed from their lives or, uh, but a lot of people probably don't know Francis. Right. Well, so it, it, to, to, to start here at the, at the present day, she is the you know, leader of what's now called the Francis Hesselbein Leadership Forum, which is now part of the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, it's gone through a variety of names over the years, but she started that. Uh, she and um, uh, uh, Dick Schubert and Bob, the late Bob Buford started that in 1990 um, after, now think about this, if you kind of do the math, this was after she retired as the CEO of the Girl Scouts of the USA. Mm-hmm. So I think it really was maybe even a manner, matter of days that she got this idea to start what was then the Peter F. Drucker Foundation for Nonprofit Management. <clears throat> and the reason she was able to do this was because about a decade or so before that, she was, the, she was in New York, she was the CEO of the Girl Scouts, uh, and she met uh, Peter Drucker at you know some sort of you know function, industry function or whatever it might be. I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, I think they they were kind of both there early and just sort of started talking. And she was already somebody who had read a lot of Drucker, but one thing led to another, and Drucker offered to do uh, pro bono consulting for the Girl Scouts. And so this this became a very regular thing, and he did all sorts of work for the Girl Scouts over this period. And then when Francis left, um, she and uh, Bob and Dick who were both, you know, real kind of luminaries in the nonprofit world, you know, as she was, uh, you, you know, so when you think about it in 1990, this kind of infrastructure there is now for leadership and management within nonprofits really wasn't there to the extent that it was. And Peter was, was very interested in nonprofits in, in part through his work with those uh, folks. So they convinced him, they did a big kind of presentation out in uh, Claremont, convinced him for him to kind of come aboard as, I guess, honorary chairman or something like that. And then it just kind of grew from there. They started leader to leader six years after that. So 1996, uh, I became managing editor in 2011. Um, We put out our 100th issue, which is fantastic. Last year, we're up to our 105th will be coming out very, very shortly. So, uh, Francis, so when you think about this, she also wrote several books. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she writes a column for, uh, for Leader to Leader. Uh, now it's with her uh, co, we have a new co-editor-in-chief. So she's editor-in-chief, but our new co-editor-in-chief, um, uh, Sarah MacArthur, writes the column with her now as of 2022. Um, but as you know, Francis is a fantastic yes. writer. Um, I reviewed a couple of her books uh, or one of her books for USA Today and one of the um, when they were called the Leader to Leader Institute and when they did uh, compilation books, I reviewed one of those as well. Um, So really, when you think about it, um, for these two people, so that's kind of the Cook's tour of Francis's life. However, when you think about it and you think about the two of them together, a lot of the things that I just mentioned about what made uh, Peter, um, so knowledgeable, for lack of a better word, um, also applied to, to Francis. And another thing is about the two of them is that it's, um, and I'm talking about them separately now, but sharing these characteristics. Yeah. It's kind of like the force, what I would call the force of their being. You know, people want to be with them. People want to, you know, when Peter uh, was alive, you know, people want to be with them. They want to be in their presence. They uh, want to, there was a great uh, phrase, as I mentioned, for USA Today, I wrote about 
not only Drucker's books, but the books about him. So uh, Jack Beatty, who went, wrote a wonderful book called The World According to Peter Drucker. So I interviewed Jack over the phone and he had this great uh, phrase that, that um, people want to know what he knows. So it's a very simple thing, but it's, but it's true. And so to me, this also gets back to the idea of, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, becoming a sage and, and in terms of, um, you know, aging and creative aging and, and mm -hmm. what have you. Um, so this idea of remaining relevant mm -hmm. over a very long time span. So having this great longevity, but also remaining re relevant that pe people now, so, you know, Francis over the age of 100, people want to be with her. People want to know what she knows. They want to be in her presence. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing for Peter. Um, so obviously not everybody, you know, can do that, but, um, you know, they're both, you know, kind of very open um, people. And they're also very good about, although I don't think either of them would use this term, but, but about networking, you know, what I would call tasteful, thoughtful networking. Mm -hmm. And Peter did it really, you know, before the age of social media. Um, if you go through the Drucker archives, much of which is online now, you know, you'll see these letters that he exchanged with people in the 1950s um, that we would think of now as something you would do on email Mm -hmm. very quickly but these you know these long letters very thoughtful letters that he wrote and that he received from people so um really to me you know what this comes down to for both of them is being exemplary role models mm -hmm. um uh and i would put that as for people who no matter where you are in life you know um there's whether you're however you define second half of life as you know as as late bob buford wrote about a lot right um right. as you, wherever you define that and of course, uh, Peter and Bob both said that in order to have this successful second half of life, you have to be preparing well before that. Yes. For, for that. So it's just this idea of being role models. And so from my way of thinking, this can be of any age. This yeah. could be people of advanced age or very young people uh, that you've got these great role models where there's all sorts of information out there about Peter and about Francis. Uh -huh. and, and including things that they've written, things that are mm -hmm. online, things that are on video, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous learning opportunity. So mm -hmm. those are just just some of the things that I've learned. And again, I'm very privileged. You know, every once in a while, I think back like, oh, my God, you know, then I've been able to do this sort of thing where I've been able to 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 work with and study with, in essence, both of these real giants both of whom uh, were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, just before Peter, which not everybody knows about that, uh, the, the highest civilian honor in the country. Um, so, you know, I can go on and on about this, but I think those are really the highlights of what people really need to think about, about their approach to life. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, yes, in some ways it, it was different just because of their circumstances. Um, and Peter, again, with this living more than one world, where he was, besides all these things that I mentioned about, you know, the cultural things, um, but, you know, in terms of his work, so uh, teaching at the school named after him in Claremont, mm -hmm. and then um, writing articles, books, very prolific, um, and then all the speaking that he did, uh, which was, which was quite amazing, you know, and he would, in the, especially when he was younger, in the summer, and he would do these, you know, European speaking tours and go to Japan, where he was really big, um, so it's like, 
that's a fantastic life, right? You know, right. that's the kind of thing we should aspire to, at least some of us. Right. No, it is fabulous. And um, my husband is an investment financial guy. And so he's been a Warren Buffett follower for decades. Right. Yeah. So what you're describing reminds me of what he says or read. In fact, Warren Buffett is quoted in my leadership books um, because I've done a lot of reading about him too, in terms of integrity. And so a lot of the same characteristics and staying relevant and people, people like my husband just went to the Buffett meeting uh, with my sons. And, you know, again, people want to be in their presence. Right. You know, you've exactly. got Charlie Munger, who's what, 99, and I think Warren's 92 or 93. So the same kind of sage-like qualities. Um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And uh, can I tell you a Charlie Munger, Peter Drucker anecdote? Yeah. Yes. In terms of fun facts? Yeah. So one of the people I interviewed, and, and, you know, unfortunately, a number of the people that I interviewed, just because this was a while ago and because of the age of the folks, uh, you know, several of these people have you know, passed away like Bob Buford. So another uh, man that I interviewed was real fascinating, was who's no longer alive. His name is Jim Michaels and he was a legendary editor at Forbes. Ironically, I worked with his son at USA Today, also named Jim Michaels, who was an editor, one of the editors at USA Today. Um, however, uh, Jim, um, I was fortunate to interview him uh, at his home in New York and he and Peter were very good friends and Peter also wrote for Forbes sometimes, so they had a relationship that way. But as we're talking, he told me this interview, this uh, anecdote about Charlie Munger that somehow, and I forget how this happened, and this was probably a number of years ago, let's say maybe 30, 40 years ago at least, um, Drucker was inter introduced to Charlie Munger. And I don't know a lot about Charlie Munger, but from what I do know, he's also kind of a polymath sort of guy like Drucker is and yes, knows yes. all sorts of things. And apparently, you know, they just started talking for something like, you know, nine hours straight, the two of them. And I would have loved to have been there for that. So again, I think there were these like-minded people mm -hmm. who, you know, lived in, you know, a little bit somewhat different worlds. Um, but it, it must have been fascinating to, you know, to, if you could have been there to listen to what they had to say. Yeah, no, that that's great. Well, you, because of your roles and particularly with Leader to Leader publication, You've interviewed a lot of leaders and who would you like us to know more about or what are some of their key messages? What would, you know, like my book, I kind of identified themes, um, you know, leading with wisdom and each chapter was a theme that emerged out of the research. Um, right. So right. What, what would be the kind of some of the key messages you want us to remember or know or that you've learned? Well, I think for a lot of them, it gets back to kind of what Francis says about, um, about you know, we're in, and, and Peter too, where, you know, integrity is your baseline and character is your baseline. And so you have to start, um, you know, you have to start with that. And it's, it's a way of being. So leadership is being. And Francis also says, you know, about service, to service, to live. Um, however, so it's, that's a very big thing. And that comes up in a lot of people's um, articles, this idea of, you know, this is your, your being. Um, but I think also with some of the folks, um, and there's so many of the people, and some of them are people, you know, that you've interviewed and you've interviewed for your uh, podcast. So um, I tried, you know, I'm thinking here about people who maybe would not be totally recognizable names to your listeners, because just so much is available about some of these folks. But um, I would say that, uh, for instance, one of the uh, 
people who was just very, very interesting, who I worked with on uh, her article, uh, is a woman named April Rennie, who is, uh, has a fascinating backstory. I won't get into it, but if you just check her online, you'll see it. But she has this concept of flux, F-L-U-X. Uh, this is based on her work and on her life. Um, she's, um, you know, she's a fairly young woman, but she's done a number of different things over the years, um, including working for, uh, she's American, but working for a, a very high-powered uh, English law firm in, in London for a while. But so this idea of, of looking at life from different perspectives um, with, a, with a future focus, which is one of the things that drew me to it, but also this thing of, of seeing the invisible about what can you do to see the invisible that, that other people are not doing. Uh, another thing in terms of, um, uh, let's say perseverance, which is, as you know, such an important quality these days. Um, you know, many people uh, who will be listening today will have seen at their, you know, online or in their supermarkets, uh, hint water, H-I-N-T, it's a, it's a um, yes. it has, you know, uh, nutrients and a little bit of flavoring in it. So Kara Golden, uh, who has a book about this, uh, you know, very often people that we, uh, who write articles adapt from their books. So uh, Kara wrote this fascinating article about how, you know, she was being stymied at every turn. She was not in, uh, I think she might've been in tech or, or marketing or something like that. Um, she was not um, an entrepreneur, didn't even really want to be, but she decided that this was a product that need to, needed to exist. And everybody told her she was crazy, including people from the large beverage companies. Uh, and she won out, you know, this company's doing really well. Um, and so um, she's, uh, you know, as I said, she's written a book, she has a podcast, which I believe is maybe along similar lines to what you're describing about, you know, trying to get out leadership lessons from people, okay. especially entrepreneurs. Um, and just one other person I'll mention, because he's probably not going to be well known to your audience, is a man named Alan Pesky, uh, P-E-S-K-Y. So Alan lives in Idaho now, but he was uh, back in the 60s, he was a pretty big deal in the New York advertising world. And so he left the advertising world and he eventually started a nonprofit called the Lee Pesky Learning Center, and this is um, named for his young son who, who unfortunately died. He uh, had, a, I believe, a brain tumor and died maybe in his 30s. But um, what happened was Lee, uh, his son had learning disabilities in an era when learning disabilities were not well known or understood. And my understanding is that if you were somebody back then, like 30, 40, 50 years ago, who had learning disabilities in school, you really had a problem because of you know, all sorts of reasons, either people yes. didn't believe you or what have you. So um, uh, Alan decided to start this nonprofit where it's, it's more than a non, it, it's, um, it's actually, as it said, is in the title learning center. So they work with, um, with young kids, um, a variety of ages, just in Idaho. So they're specialized, but just in Idaho. And they're doing all sorts of fantastic work and research and sort of all in the name of his late son. So again, Here's somebody who decided, you know, he was going to use his money and his know-how and presumably his connections. I'm figuring a guy like that is quite well connected to, to start something where it's a social entrepreneurship venture where he's going to really do good with this and he's going to impact lives in a really powerful way. So, you know, we have a number of, uh, of people like that. 
um, in Leader to Leader. Uh, maybe just one other quick one I'll mention is Joanne Jenkins, who's the CEO of AARP. Um, yeah, I read so, her book on uh, yeah, Disrupt Aging. Yes, yeah, Disrupt Aging. So she, yeah. she wrote something. I, I, it was not actually uh, adapted from the book, but it was similar material. So, you know, this idea of thinking of aging in just totally different ways, mm -hmm. which is the reason for being for AARP. Uh, and that book is a great book and her article is really, really great. So, you know, these are the types of things where somebody can come at their material in new ways. Uh, and when I said familiar names, those familiar names are still coming at things in new ways. It's just that I feel that probably a lot of your um, listeners will already know the sort yes. of people that you and I could just roll off names off the top of our you know, head. Right. No, this is so interesting. I want to shift gears a little bit because we're kind of coming to a close here. Um, so my passion right now is legacy. And right. I mentioned I have a book coming out on that topic. How do you define legacy? What's legacy mean to you, you know, given the fact that you've worked with such legends? I think legacy is... Um, you know, it's hard for me to think of it directly and to think of it, you know, as that term, even though, you know, Drucker said kind of like, what do you want to be remembered for? And that's certainly a valid um, thing. But certainly I'd like to, I'd like my legacy to be, um, you know, a body of work, you know, my, um, my books, my articles, things like that. And also things where my name isn't on it at all, but things where I've worked with people on their articles, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, my that certainly from my body of work, certainly from my relationships with people, that people re, will remember that, uh, and also uh, by the way for my uh, teaching. So I don't teach very frequently. It's mostly had been once a year for the past couple of years for a variety of reasons. It's been nothing, but uh, this is the formal teaching at Catholic University in their uh, library school program. But uh, you know I stay in touch with a number of my former students. Um, I've done. Uh, conferences with them where we've done, you know, planning and that sort of thing. So um, I think if you have something like that, where you have a kind of teaching relationship with people, that that's, a, that's something that's almost inexhaustible. And then that leads through what they can do with other people. So people who wouldn't necessarily know me, but they would learn things from um, those students. So that's how I would try to put it in a relative nutshell. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Well, I like to ask my interviewees, what else should I have asked that my listeners need to know? You know, um, I know when I'm interviewed, there's, you know, there's usually something that, oh, I would like to share that. So just something that you'd like to share from your work, your life experience, you know, wisdom. I mean, you've worked with, uh, yeah, some well, of the best, some of the best. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, maybe um, it would be what kept me going from the start of writing the first book and researching the first book in 2002 and not getting a book contract until the middle of 2008. I would say um, that would be something that would be instructive for your um, listeners. And what I would say to that is that uh, I was very frustrated a lot of that time but what kept me going was that I knew how important Drucker was. And from 2002 to 2005, he was still alive. So I knew that I had to um, seize the opportunity for doing these interviews. And that 
those things kept me going. I also, so after, and then after Peter died, I was, I had kind of the added thing of knowing that, that since unfortunately he didn't live to see the book come out or to have a, uh, even see that I had a book contract, I felt that I, I owed it in some way to him to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I got farther and farther into that and did more and more interviews and research, and even though I was getting a lot of rejections and what have you, I had something else in the back of my mind, which is that I knew that in 2009 was going to be the 100th anniversary of Drucker's birth, and that the Drucker School and the Drucker Institute, um, both uh, uh, organizations where I know lots of people and you know have done a variety of work with them, I knew that in 2009, that there were going to be all these festivities. Mm -hmm. So that was one of my selling points, as it were, to publishers. And finally, you know, Barrett Kohler um, said yes, after everybody else saying no. And so I was vindicated. But again, we're talking six and a half years yeah. of disappointment. But those were the things that kept me going. Yeah, I can relate because I, I have written a few books and it would take me a decade to get a publisher. And BK, Barrett Kohler, has turned me down every time. So <laughs> I thought with this last one, surely I would get BK. But it's, well, it, it's a hard game. And, you know, again, people self-publish and there are advantages of doing that, but right. I always like to say I found a publisher, so. Yeah, well, I'll tell you uh, just very quickly, BK um, did not take my second book. It, it, it was offered to them first and it ended up being with McGraw-Hill. And after, you know, they gave me their reasons, but, and they said, uh, by the way, you had a fantastic book proposal, but it's just, not something we want to do, yeah. but you know, I'm I'm still very very involved with uh, with Barrett Kohler, um, and I have a good relationship with them, and so it's just one of those things. And I will say that my editor, the the one person who, in terms of publishers, now I have a great agent named John Willig who stuck with me too, mm -hmm. but the one person in terms of publishers who who saw this thing out was a woman named Johanna von Delling. And she was my editor, and Johanna later became president of the company. Oh, wow. So I feel like incredibly vindicated by all these things. Yeah. If the person who took a chance on me became, you know, president of Barrett Kohler. Wow, that's excellent. Well, Bruce, this has been great, and I want to keep our, our conversation relationship going here. Absolutely. Um, yeah. As I told you before, when we set up this interview, I, I would have my students read leader to leader. So that's, that's part of the leadership uh, my, part of my leadership course. Well, this has been a great conversation. My focus is on helping people make the rest of life the best of life. So may the rest be the best for you, Bruce. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.